Welcome your backup plan tribe to another awesome, awesome show that I have for you today. Oh my goodness, breaking free. One women's incredible escape from a decade of abuse. We're going to talk about domestic violence in this episode, and I hope that we can help just one, one person during the show acknowledge that there has been abuse because I know a lot of women go through abuse thinking, making up excuses, um, wondering if, and, and you get love bombed a lot. I'm just wondering, oh, tough topic. Okay, we can do this. Whew. All right, let's get back at it. Um, it's going to be an awesome show, and we're going to get right into it. My name's Tina Gim. I am with Your Backup Plan app. I'm a creator and developer of Your Backup Plan, and I am a best-selling author of In the Blink of an Eye. Just like that, everything changes. Everything in your life changes in a quick second. I am also a financial advisor and an emergency preparedness coach, and I have to take a drink. Hold on. There we go. Okay. Um, you know, I'm not going to talk too, too much because I want to get right into this show, but we are on all platforms, podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and of course, Pinterest. And we talk about with our guests really amazing stories about how something has changed their life in a blink of an eye. And I'm so excited to bring on Danielle Patrice here today who's gonna talk about domestic violence. And she comes to us from New Jersey and we are going to do a quick commercial and get right into it. In the blink of an eye, life can change dramatically. On our podcast, Talking Taboo with Tina, we delve into these life-altering events with celebrities, authors, and everyday people just like you. You'll also discover your backup plan app, a life organizing tool designed to prepare you for any unexpected circumstance. It's your safety net, taking the sting out of tragedy. Imagine a plan B that ensures your finances are safe, even in the worst case scenario. But it doesn't end there. Join our vibrant Facebook group for free webinars on backup planning and secure your future today. Welcome back. All right, let's bring on Danielle to our show. She comes to us from New Jersey. She's an author, a mother, and a DV survivor. We're going to talk about DV as domestic violence survivor. She is also a motivational speaker. So thank you. Thank you so very much for coming on our show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am too. And I don't know where the tears came from for a second there. I'm not really sure, but it's okay. We're, we're all in the same boat here. So we understand. That's right. So Danielle, where did it all start for you? For me, it started in college. I was a senior in college and I met this guy who was a great friend to me. And over time, you know, we met in the, in the Spanish class and, you know, I we bonded over so many different things uh, at the time where um, our opinions of a certain restaurant that I used to work at. And I used to get a kick out of it. And we both uh, 
basically felt the same sentiment. And then in that class, my teacher, he was, she was a very quirky woman and we had to do a Spanish rap at the time. So I had to do this rap and, and practice it for days. And then when I actually did this rap, this is, you know, it basically caught his attention. And so we became very good friends from that point forward. And he, you know, and at the time we were dating different people. So I had no idea, you know, what kind of person he was romantically. But as a friend, I mean, I thought it was amazing. It was very sweet. Uh, he, you know, took me, to, well, he would walk me to class. He would, you know, we would talk on the phone or he would help me fix my car. So it was never like any type of suspicion, you know, and I want to say the beginning of all of this, we started dating in 2009. So six, six weeks after I graduated from college, uh, my mother committed suicide and Thank you. And he was one of those friends that was there for me during that time. And so, and prior to my mom's passing, I never looked at him romantically at all. Never thought of him that way. And as a friend and going through this, grieving this um, hard, horrific loss, you know, he was there for me. He was there actually for my family. He met my family at the time and we were able to, to connect over that that period, I, I want to say, in this was two thousand nine. So by June two thousand nine, I was going back to New Jersey before I was living in Tennessee. So well, that's where my college was, and I was going to move back to New Jersey and was working on trying to you know figure out a plan and just to see the area again. And he said, "Hey, I'm I'm going back to to Maryland. Come, you know, why don't we go together?" And I said, "Okay, you know, fine. Let's uh, let's go." And over that time, or that course of those few days, I got a call from his, one of his relatives and was telling him, hey, you know, he likes you. And I met, you know, this, this relative of his, you know, through him. And we, you know, we were talking and it's like, okay. He never told me, he never explained that to me. I had no idea because I wasn't, you know, really interested at that point and up until that point. And so I remember asking him in the car as we were on this road trip and I said, I thought you had a girlfriend. What, what happened to this? And so he said, well, you know, you know, she's not really my girlfriend or, you know, just whatever type of thing he was saying, you know, she's my roommate, she's this, this, and that. And at the time I was naive thinking, okay, you know, why would he lie to me? Why, why would he lie to me? You know? And so during that, that period, we, you know, we became a couple, we started dating so I'm believing that this is this man is not dating anybody. And of was course, he? it's not true. He was still oh, dating her. No. He was still dating her. <laughs> and, it, you know, and it's like it's right in your face. But, it, you know, it was also one of those things like, no, I'm not dating her. No, it's it, it was just one of those things like I know I was definitely naive at the time because I truly thought like, no, why would he lie to me about that? If he wasn't dating her, maybe he's helping her out. You know, they she was in his house and maybe, you know, they're roommates. But of course, you know, I was completely plumful, uh, naive. Let me just say that over that course, I, I feel like in the beginning, it was like a whirlwind, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of love. It was a lot of, you know, just, I don't want to say praise, but just a lot of, um, what, what's the word? Just everything felt like it was, it was great. Like, this is a great guy. We're, it, it was just a lot of enjoyment being together and getting to know each other. And even in that, that that quick moment, we had known each other by uh, for a year and a half. And I remember saying, yeah, I'm going to make you my wife. I'm, gonna, I'm like, oh, wow. And I'm believing all of this. 
all at the same time. You know, and I looking back on it, I really shouldn't have been in that relationship. I should have stayed, you know, in the morning grieving because that was the same. It was six months after my mother passed that all of this happened. So, you know, I know now that that was not the time to be in any type of relationship. But, you know, throughout that time, we were getting not just getting to know each other, but also I was meeting his family. And one of the things I did notice is that I had no idea how big of a family he had because we never talked about his family. You know, it's one of those things for me that I thought, you know, it's almost like, I think I know you and I know this kind of person, but then it's like the home life or the home version of him is completely different. And that's what kind of surprised me because I was very open with, you know, he met my family. He knew, you know, about, you know, my, my aunts. He pretty much got to know everybody. But, you know, with him, it was, I think it was a little more secretive, I felt that he kept his, his family tucked away. And even though we were friends. So um, I wouldn't say by the time that, I'd say by September, October, I ended up getting pregnant with my older son. And there was some sort of, he had some sort of breakdown. And I don't wanna go too deep into that, that's his, his business. But I, I will say throughout my pregnancy, I pretty much, I just graduated. I pretty much the job that I was working, I had stopped working after my mother's passing. So I had to really figure out what am I going to do? And part before my mother's passed, I, I actually was planning to go to grad school. I wanted to get into film, I was, you know, graduating. And a lot of that changed. And, and because a lot of that changes is because of the dynamic I have with my father. And part of that was him saying, you need to move on two months after my mother's passing. So I'm, I'm saying all this because this is also different elements that played into this relationship. Yeah. So we ended up, you know, I, again, I got pregnant. I remember around the time he was also telling my family, yeah, I'm going to marry her. And, and I may have my dates a little switched, but yeah, I'm going to marry her. I want your blessing. I want your blessing. And at the same time, uh, one of my relatives said, no, you cannot have my blessing because you know, has to handle business. And a lot of that was because of my mother's passing. And I was able to get, you know, in some money from that, that, oh, you owe, you owe me money back from paying for the funeral. You have to pay me back for the funeral. You have to pay me for this. And so I, I cut off a lot of my relatives because we never talked about this. Uh, keep in mind, at the time, I was 22 years old and my mother passed at 44. So yeah. this is a traumatic experience that I'm dealing with at that moment. Absolutely. And while- There's a lot of things to think about and have to do. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing, you know, also I had to learn different terminology you know, learning how to become an, or what an executrix is, you mm -hmm. know, over in the state. I never had to worry about that but prior to the age of 22, but I had to learn these things. I had to learn, you know, I had to make the decisions on how her funeral was going to be. I had to handle all of these types of things prior to, you know, during her, like after her passing. Yeah. So for me, which is twice hard. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I was, you know, actually I'm her only child. So I'm dealing with, you know, the suicide and I'm handling that by myself. You know, it's one thing to deal with suicide, um, you know, as a sibling or, as, you know, and it's hard anyway. But as her child, it's, it, no one could understand how I felt or what I was going through at that moment. And that Plus wasn't talked about. Dealing with all the relatives, too, is not easy. No, it's, it's not. And you get to see what type of people you're dealing with during that type of uh, during the funerals. It, it never brings the. It's never always a good, it's always a disaster. Let me just say that. 
These are disasters. It always brings out somebody, doesn't it? Right. Yes. Yes. Sorry, my headphones. That's greedy, or I'm not really sure what to call it, but it always seems to bring out one or two people that that you're like, where did they come from? Right. It brings the truth out of people. I, I say how they really feel. And so, yeah. uh, you know, and but going, you know, fast forward to that, you know, me getting pregnant, me, him wanting to get married and my relative, you know, is basically destroying my character to this man. And, and you know, hindsight, I look back, you basically handed me to him to destroy me, you know, and you basically sent the dangerous message that we don't protect her. We're not protecting her. That and to someone who is an abuser, that is the that is so alarming. And that's the most dangerous thing you can do because now they can take in and have at it, take advantage of that situation. So my uh, experience, again, being pregnant and I had to make a decision. I said I had to find a job, get an apartment, get a car all before he was born. And I did successfully while he was, you know, in a different state trying to handle whatever he needed to take care of. Uh, he did. He would come up during the my uh, ultrasounds, but then go back home to his family and and his, you know, that whole and his girlfriend. No, 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 not at the time. Well, I think hopefully by that point they were broken up because, yeah, that was a whole other situation. Hopefully, let's just say that because I, you never really know. You you never really know. Anyway, but by 2010, I had moved into this apartment and, and this was a place where um, this was a pastor who actually we had mutual relatives. And um, so I was able to stay in this particular apartment and I, you know, and I've known this family for quite some time, you know, since I was a child, I was able to talk to them and, and allow him, you know, my well, then boyfriend to you know, stay with me and whatnot. And the day that he was supposed to leave is when I, um, I actually went into labor. So I actually had to go into labor and, and I had my son. And, you know, for a few months afterwards, the pastor told me, she said, hey, look, you guys have been shacking up for the past, you know, a few months. You guys got to get married. Now, we did talk about prior to getting married, you know, and but we were not talking about it at that time. And so we ended up getting married and, you know, and it's because the thing was, it was like, oh my God, because if he, if we, if he couldn't, if he couldn't get married, we basically had to, uh, he had to leave. And so it's like, oh my God, like basically I'm looking at it as this is my family. I have to get, you know, I'm going to have to do what I have to do. This is, you know, this is the child. Oh, no. Right. So I, we got married and prior to, I will say prior to the mar the marriage, you know, it was a little emotional abuse. So I'll say a little, little snarks, little things he would say. And it, it was just, it was very off-putting because it didn't make sense. It, it, it didn't make sense. I'm sorry, guys. My headset is just like, I don't know why. It's just sliding fine. off my head. <laughs> it was fine 30 minutes ago, but it's like now it wants to show off. Sorry. But, um, you know, but the night of the, before the wedding, and I remember that he, we got into it. We, it. Usually that's the bachelor night. That's the bachelorette party. We didn't have that. We didn't have that at all. And, you know, look, I had my son, you know, we, what are you going to do that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But we had gotten to an argument of some sort. And I just recall him telling me, you know, pinning me down and saying, now I can do whatever I want to because you'll be my wife. 
And that was just the most scariest point because it was like, oh my God, what am I signing myself up to? What am I doing? And what most importantly, how am I going to get out of this? Because the wedding was the next day and it wasn't a big wedding, but it was like, I'm going to have to go through with this. How do I get out of this? You know, my mother was, was really my protector. I didn't have anybody after that to be my protector. Well, to give you some help to understand what to do. Right. Right. I guess she could do like all the, the funny movies and TV shows do and you get married, but before you get married, you leave out the window. (laughs) Right. 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 But you know, I, I tell you that, yeah, that wasn't going to happen at that point, <laughs> you know, uh, but, and, and, you know, I, I'll say that the interesting thing, you know, because actually my son was with his father during, you know, getting ready, everybody's getting ready. So he actually, I guess, what do you want to call it? Like he was five months old. So maybe we consider his best man or whatnot, you know, but actually, and his father was the one that actually walked me down the aisle at that time. So it, to me, I did not have a real clear path on how to get out of it, how to walk away. I just, I didn't see a way out. Let me say that. Went through with the wedding, everything I, I, normal. Everything was normal. Let's just say that. And then I would say within the three weeks was the first physical incident. And I, I don't recall, I don't remember like a lot of that happening, but I do remember him running out of the room and chasing me and pinning me like down, not down on the floor, but like pinning me across the um, chest, the wall. No, he was like, like basically pushing me into the wall. And I was wearing my mother's shirt at the time and ripped the left sleeve of her shirt. And I just, re- I just remembered that whole situation. And I, at that point I did not call the police. I did not, you know, I, and there was a, a few incidents that, that happened during that time. Meanwhile, the people that, you know, with the church and the organizations that that I was familiar with were also, you know, more, I, I want to say they started getting closer with my then husband. And, you know, he wasn't from the area, which I understood. And I did, I was saying in the beginning, I encouraged that because like, look, find people to, you know, meet and, and know you and whatnot. However, you know, I also feel, and this is me personally speaking about this opinion, and I felt that because the knowing that there's issues with my family and the church and the the people in this organization also there was some bad blood there and i feel that he used that to his advantage and so a lot of that you would you know talk about oh how you know the the marriage was going and the arguments we were having and you know to me not one of them set us down and i i feel in being a lot of them didn't didn't really you know I say connect us as a couple, include us as a couple. It was almost like it was, I was this side or I was this side. And, and, you know, there were children and there was a child involved in this. So but don't I'll, you think they are good at that though? Separating? Oh yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Isolating you out of the picture as much as they can. Absolutely. And I also feel that the people who are also like-minded also know how to play that game too. And, and, you know, and so I feel that with the people that were involved in it, you know, it was almost like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, she's like this. Well, I know how her family is and they're like this. And so you you get the, you know, the, the gabbing and gossiping and, and whatnot. And then when it turned out, oh, she's like that, you need to get a restraining order. So for those who may not know, the protection order and, you know, go get a restraining order. 
So then out of blue, he gets this restraining order and files and takes my son who was then, I want to say one years old at the time. And he is all of a sudden, I don't know what's going on. And now this is a whole whirlwind of information because I don't know what's going on. I don't know what is, is, is taking place, you know, and then I got the call from the police saying that there was a restraining order and then having to go to court, you gotta go to court. So when I went to court about it, I remember being so scared with that because I'm like, what is happening? And at first it was talking about visitation with my son and whatnot. And at that point, my oldest son, he had um, a GI tube. And for those like he was failure to thrive. And so with that, you had to physically or manually put in this GI tube this, and put it through his nose into his stomach so that he can have his milk pumped into him to gain weight. And so for me having to, you know, also being his main caregiver, because at the time I was at home, my ex-husband was working. And I just, everything just didn't make sense. It, it's just, it was just so uh, confusing and dealing with the court. So, and I just remember like, even though uh, my family was in and out of my life at this point. So was, there was certain points where they were in and certain points they, you know, we were estranged, but this particular point, mom took me to the courts and she said, Dan, you didn't stand up for yourself or you didn't speak up. And I, cause I didn't know what to expect. And so I, um, talk to the courts and I said, I want an emergent hearing. I want this handled. I want this taken care of. I, I need help. You know, I'm a domestic violence survivor or a victim at that point. And I always praise this woman and she is my hero. Um, and I, Sue Fortino is just amazing. You know, she's a DB advocate at, at the court and I love oh. her dearly. Yes. Uh, she's just, you know, she says she does her job, but let me tell you something. When you have people who do their job and do their job well, and who are passionate about what they do, I can never repay her the way that she, you know, she helped me because what ended up happening was she showed me what was going on. And I explained to her, look, I, you know, I am his married main caregiver. My son was with, was basically, his father was with him and took him for four days. I didn't know what was going on. And yeah. I, I could not, you know, I couldn't even stomach it. I couldn't eat. I, I just did not know what was going on and because you know you're a caregiver you're the main caregiver and he's not there mainly and you know you're going through this and I'm explaining what's happening with this um in this particular situation that I did a counter restraining order and see in New Jersey I don't know like in different places but in Jersey you know it's almost like a first come first serve like whoever gets the restraining order first so that means if you get the restraining order first, that means you get the house. That person who doesn't get the restraining order, they have to ev uh, evacuate. And if they have 15 minutes to get their belongings and come back when the cops are there, it, it's it's a mess. But so I had to stay with, you know, with relatives. And the thing was, you know, what Sue did, she she explained to, um, actually she called his mother that day. And I'll never forget it. She said, you know, they basically this basically is a domestic violence victim and that you have until 730 to bring that child back here. And by 730, oh, they were there at that courthouse to bring my child. So now we're having a counter battle with counter restraining orders. Oh, dear. And it, it, it was ugly. And this was I mean, we had our this was by our first anniversary. We were having court, you know, our first anniversary being married. And it, it, it was just horrible. It's just, I mean, it's just like, I didn't understand. I didn't understand what was going on. And so even, you know, talking to different um, people or 
you know, just trying to feel, just figuring out the process of the courts is, it can be very intimidating and it's, it's very upsetting because it's, unless you have an attorney that can walk you and guide you through it as a victim, you know, as a survivor, you're trying to, you're dealing with abuse and then you're dealing with, and there's children involved, you're, you're, you're concerned about your children. Yeah. You know, and then having to deal with the judge. And once it's taken out of that context of, you know, you're getting dealing with the police, you're dealing with the judge. It's on the judge's dime and what the judge decides. And that's it. It's 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 very scary. Mm -hmm. So I contact, you know, I basically tried to do a little research, try to understand what was happening. And with that restraining order, even with both restraining orders, by the time we had court, we ended up, I believe we ended up dropping it. But I, you know, the irony is that the judge, he asked me, why didn't you call the police? If you were going through this, why didn't you contact the police? And I, I just didn't have an answer. Like, I, you know, but the thing is, is that I'm not trying to coach. I just want him to stop yeah. you know, the fighting. You know, I mean, I remember like having a knot on my head because he had butted me. I remember fighting, you know, and, and trying to get him away from me or get him stop pinning me down and things like that. I'm trying to fight this, this man off me. And, you know, and so I'm but at the same time, I'm thinking this is my husband. This is my husband. I'm not trying to get all into the courts. Yeah. And again, that was my first time. So this is what I was met with. And the judge didn't believe me because he he said, basically, from what I feel, and I'll just say it like this, this was 2011. I feel that it was just mainly because of my the way I presented. My ex-husband is very charismatic and he's very smart. He's not dumb by any means. But he was able to, you know, articulate better than I was at the time. So, and this is was the pattern for over um, a few years, over the like the not saying decade, but almost eight years from that point. You know, going back and forth, it was almost every year going back to court. You know, you know, fighting with him with the uh, restraining orders, where I've had to contact the police, where I've had to contact. We call our New Jersey DCPMP getting involved. He's contacting DCPMP. It was just, it was a circus. You know, it was the abuse and him creating this narrative and me having to overprove that I had this happening, having documentation, contacting people. Because once they said, why didn't you contact the police? After every time I've had to contact the police. Uh, one particular incident I'll say, you know, back in 2016, and I remember there was a particular incident where someone else was there and he's having a knife to my throat, a butcher knife to my throat. And he, you know, and I had to be calm trying to make sure that I don't make any subtle moves, do anything that he's going to try to kill me. You know, and he ended up having the butcher knife in my face and saying, like, do you want a divorce? And I just remember him telling like, like him put the knife down and, and the third person that was there, like, you know, give me the knife and just pushing him away from me as far as I can and just fighting, just getting, trying to get out of there, getting away from him. Fortunately, by this point, my children, I had two children at that point, and they were in the other room, so they never saw anything. But I, you know, had to basically I'm fighting. And the thing is, I want people to understand is that, you know, you could say whatever you would do in that situation until you are really faced with that, that type of situation where you don't know how you're going to live and, and whatever decision you make may not be socially acceptable, but this is about survival. And what are you going to do to survive? And so I remember that night he put a, um, he took an iron after putting down the butcher knife, he ended up getting this iron. And he was trying to chase me with the iron. I have, and I'm running outside in the dead of winter without any, no coat, no no shoes, no nothing. I'm running to out of my like for my life. And I remember running zigzag, and he fell, and I 
ran to my friend's house who saw me and just saw me such a disarray and, and asking and begging for help. And then, and you see him like, I'm having the scratches on my chest. Looks like I'm getting like scratched by Wolverine. And it's just, you know, this is the kind of things that are happening. And, you know, it's calling the police. I'm calling the police asking for help. But because he had a witness there, the witness said, oh, there was no knife here. So now we're both getting, we're both going to, to uh, the precinct. I'm being considered a suspect and he's able to file a restraining order. And then he's playing gospel music at the same time. Like, as if, I mean, he's just putting on a show completely. It, is, it was insane. And this having to keep fighting these battles at, over and over again. So by, uh, I'd say by 2018, was the, the heckle and Jekyll thing common? Have you noticed? I, I definitely feel this? that's a, I definitely feel that that's a, a, a part of that plays in it because I, I feel like it's who they want to narrate in the, in front of the audience versus who they are behind closed doors. And I think that's the most important component that understanding who they are, you know, behind the scenes. You don't see them when they're in that element. You may hear a story, a part of that story, but you don't understand what is truly happening because you're not there to witness it. Yeah. You know, and so in anybody can change the story, however, but the thing is, it's about understanding the dynamic. And the fact that by that point, the eggshells are happening and I'm having to walk on them and I'm having to, to make sure, OK, when is this happening or how is this turning this way or having to. I mean, it, it, it's, it's sick. It, it's sickening. It is. It's like so. I think it's like, did you find yourself being an actress like you're trying to be an actress, too, because you have to put up this brave front of dealing with this stuff that you have no idea how to deal with I, I guess that's how I would picture it. No, kind of, sort of, because I felt, I know I felt trapped at that mm -hmm. point. And like I said, this was before COVID. So I felt trapped, but I also, I had to, I, I will say the better term for me is I had to feel, I had to be guarded. So a part yeah. of myself that I felt or held dear to, I had to hold to myself and I had to become a, a different person person a different I was looking like as a shell I was you know and and be this this front this this shell because I didn't know what to expect but I will say I used to always say I was wondering when the devil will show up because I was anticipating it well as soon as I would say to myself in my own relationship as soon as I said gee he's being really nice now I thought uh oh something's coming something's coming yeah, that's that's the it was always the honeymoon phase. And then it was the yeah, it, it, the destruction phase. It was always that. But I never got the, you know, the presence. It was never that it was, you know, maybe a, a apology of some sort, but it wasn't. Or it's say, hey, well, we both made mistakes. And it's like, you know what? I, I'm fighting for my life here. I, I don't want to hear this mess. You know, so I um I, I feel like it's more so the minimization. Yeah. Pinpointing as it's it's not what you think it is. Oh, well, you know, we both made mistakes, Daniel. Or we both, and it's like, you know what? I can admit my fault. Trust me, I, I will hold myself accountable. But at the same time, I'm not about to sit here and act like I'm in the fool. You know, I, I'm this person is trying to attack you. That's that's trying to instigate an argument or trying to cause 
issues in my marriage because I wanted my marriage. I wanted to make it work. I wanted my children to have a father. And unfortunately, because of that dynamic, this toxic, sick dynamic, I paid a huge price for that. Yeah. You know, and so did I. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's it's the hardest choice for a woman, for a mother, a wife to say, you know, I I can't do this. I can't do this. But um, I will say the last like hurrah, the last incident. And so, yes, I'm sorry, guys. My headphones is just they want to make a scene. They want to make a point. <laughs> but my my last hurrah was uh, when we had my oldest child out till four o'clock in the morning. And I didn't know where my child was. I didn't know, you know, what was going on. And he used to, what he would do is have his mistresses around my children. And he would try to convince my child to, you know, don't tell mom. It's OK to lie to mom. Things like that. And, you know, and I was irate. I was like, where is my child? Why are you having him out at? four o'clock in the morning, he was seven years old. There's no reason for that. And we got into it. And I, of course, I confronted him about his mistress and it was just all hell broke loose. Uh, a lot of the, like I said, a lot of the pinning down and my four-year-old son at the time was trying to protect me. Like I felt like he was trying to come forth and I had to tell him to back away and him trying to raise his hands in the middle of us so that one of us would pick him up. And then that last, like that last incident, he, he would tell me, he said, you know, Dale, I can kill you with my bare hands. And my son was sitting next to me, my younger one. And as he was putting his hands around my neck or trying to, he ended up stopping. He said, I can't do it because he's looking at me. And at that moment, everything clicked. It's like, you know what? If I can't fight for myself, I'm damn sure going to fight for my children. And that is like the next day like I filed for my, that was my seventh restraining order. Mind you. It was a lot of restraining orders. And I filed for that. Then I ended up filing for divorce. And I had to do my own divorce because I could not afford an attorney. It is yeah. very expensive. It's very expensive. Right. And, well, and quickly, <laughs> don't forget where you're at. You're at the divorce part. I just right. want to make sure that everybody listening knows that Danielle's information is down below um, because we're going to talk about the book in this next half um, also and how she got involved in all of that. Um, But I want you to like, share, and subscribe to the show if you already haven't. Welcome to to, um, Talking Taboo with Tina. Because where we talk to guests just like Danielle about really tragic uh, events that changed her life. And um, yeah, I don't know, Danielle. Uh, We're at the divorce part now. It's it's just never easy. No. But I, I got to tell you, though, you know, one thing, like he pretty much abandoned his family. That's what ended up happening him for his mistress. And so um, fortunately for me, I was able to stay in the house. But the, the thing is, it, it still was scary because I didn't know when he was going to come back or if he was going to come back. Uh, and I say that for anybody that is going through that type of situation or you're trying to leave and whatnot, you know, make sure you have all your documents, make sure you have all your information, have a plan. Make sure you have someone that you can talk to, you know, that you wholeheartedly trust that, you know, it's not going to get back to him and make sure you, you know, if you can, if you have your phone, you know, try to record your information or you know, documentation. Episodes. Yes, definitely episodes and, and time and like have um, time stamps. Make sure you have all of this information because you have to overproof. You know, people are automatically not going to believe you because, oh, that can't happen. That's not going to happen. So you have to go above the ground, above everything else to say, this is what I'm going through for them to finally see 
the truth. Prepare, prepare, prepare. And know, yeah. you know, um, and know what to do, you know, contacting maybe the local shelters, contacting police, contact whoever, anybody and everybody that will listen to help you get out of your situation. Because it's going to take that. It takes a village to raise an abuser. It takes a village to help, to get people to help you. Trust me, it it, it takes a lot. It does. So, but, and it yeah. um, it's hard to do by yourself. Let's face yeah. it. it. It's because very- you don't know what to do. Um, and you're in it. And I always say to people, it's much easier to see the situation from the outside looking in than it is when you're in. Absolutely. People, you know, want to comment from the sidelines, but until you're in that situation, you don't know what you're going to do. And see, before that, he had, um, he was graduating from college. I had, you know, got him into uh, finishing for his, his bachelor's and he had made a plan to, you know, basically leave my family destitute. So he left us destitute with no money. You know, maybe the car needed to be fixed. And I had to, you know, hustle, try to, you know, make money so that we could have a roof over our heads. And my family and I ended up being homeless where we were living at the bottom of a basement of a barbershop. And for a few weeks, we're living with different relatives, or not relatives, but different friends and, and friends, whatnot. Yeah. And trying to get into transitional housing so that we can get, you know, off the, the streets and, and really being more stable. And, you know, and the thing was, my children were starting school at that time. And it, if it wasn't for this woman, I would say Nisha, who was amazing, uh, she had a foundation grow. And it was just, if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for different organizations, and not just your standard organizations, but you also have other organizations that you that are lesser known, but they do offer other options that may not be out the norm. And that was and she operated New Jersey and Virginia. So I was just so wholeheartedly thankful for her. Um, and then throughout that time, you know, just trying to get us back and, and on becoming stable and handling like divorce. Yeah. So I had to file for my own divorce, learn the law techno, um, terminologies, learning how to do my own work, because, again, I couldn't afford it. You know, $25,000 for an attorney, I didn't have that money, you know, if that. Yeah, but, in Canada, it's about $10,000 see, it, it's, to put up front. Yeah, and it de- and also it depends. I think a lot of lawyers in, in America are like two fifty dollars an hour. You know, some retain for $3,000. It, it's just, and it's a lengthy process. Uh, divorce, depending on the types of divorce. So you're going to court, it could be a year to two years. And I ended up getting a default uh, divorce because he didn't hardly show up to court, which but I ended up um, being able to to be awarded that judgment and have everything that I asked for. And I also, you know, found out later on, but, you know, his mother was trying to do um, a grandparents rights and see in New Jersey, depending on the um, I want to say the counties you're able to file for grandparents' rights if you feel that the, the parent is withholding affection from the grandparent. However, there's certain stipulations with that. And part of it was, you know, that was able to win that case was because my kids weren't going to visit her that often. She wasn't seeing them that often. But I, I believe that she was doing that because, well, if my son can't win against you, I'm going to try to win against you. Yeah. And the judge, he ruled in my paper saying, if you want to see your grandchildren, you know, contact the mother. She is their mother. I can't, you know, rule against you know, against her. And because at that point, I had already been awarded, you know, so custody. I had been awarded, you know, everything because of what had t- um, transpired and taken place. 
And with my extensive lengthy amount of evidence, I had over a hundred pages worth of documents of evidence that I kept from years on in that it also ruled in my favor to show like, this is the proof that I had going on. So I, I want to say to fast forward that, you know, I did a lot of motivational speaking. I did a lot of activism, you know, talking to different like um, political like senators. And I went to the governor's office with my children and it just trying to create awareness. And, and one of the things that I noticed is that even when I talk about my experience, it was more of, you know, sympathy. It was, I'm, I'm sorry that you went through that, but it wasn't, I wanted to embark change. And so right. during COVID and, you know, everybody has their own experience during COVID, you know, that's for sure. But COVID, I really, <laughs> exactly. But I feel like with COVID, it allowed me to think like what really happened, what happened to me during this dynamic? Because I did feel like I did change as a person. I, I do, you know, I, I do have my guard up. I'm, I'm definitely not as, as the same. It, it, to yeah. me, I feel like going through that experience, you know, is almost like um, in comparison, someone having physical therapy, having to walk again, having to talk again, because being brainwashed, you know, yes. in this way to becoming a shell, you know, you got to realize this is somebody who, you know, you're loving somebody and they're and what they're doing is taking your love and twisting it and it is becoming tainted and manipulating for them to exploit for power of control. That is yeah. what's happening. And so, yeah. you know, for me, I'm having to learn how to, you know, not just love myself, but also understand myself and what took place. And so I there was a online research academy called Polygens. And, and this this actual research academy was geared marketed towards uh, middle school age children. But I at first I didn't see that. And I said, you know what? Um, I I noticed that you guys are just doing for middle school age. And they said, no, no, you can you can do it. And at that point, it was 35. So I'm like, OK, I'm far from uh, middle school, but I do have a child that is you know approaching that age. But I had this amazing mentor who, you know, Isabella, who I'm just so grateful for, because what she did was allow me to learn research and learn how to scientifically research. And so I wanted to understand what would happen in the brain. And so I am not a neuroscientist. I'm not a doctor. You know, my bachelor's in communications. However, I have the experience of being a DV survivor and being a victim of DV. I wanted to understand it because knowing it from the inside, I can definitely be, you know, articulate what's happening and tell you this is what we're looking at. This is what we're dealing with here. So. With that, I was able to research different literature reviews from amazing scientists. I was able to collect a lot of data, uh, interviewing different people, you know, from all walks of life, whether it was a sociologist, uh, a former police officer, warden. Um, and I was also inter um, interviewing children, psychologists. I mean, just different things for people to understand and um, and figure out the, their perspectives from their respective fields and how DV affects them, you know, whether it's directly or indirectly. Yeah. And then I, you know, put my own spin on it with my own experience adding to that touch. And wanting people to have this understanding of the levels of domestic violence because people assume, well, this is happening because it's two people fighting. Why can't you get along or why why do you stay and, and blah, 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 blah. However, I wanted to really dive in and show that there is a deeper level that needs to be understood here. So I compared it to uh, the ecosystem. And, you know, biological terms is everything being in interconnected, 
you know, the sun is, is you know, the beaming, it, you know, it helps the trees grow, helps the plants grow. You know, when you're walking under the tree, you know, you're getting shade, like all of these things, you know, from the hot sun, you're getting all of these interconnections. And yeah. violence is the same thing. And so with that, you know, a lot of people don't know the brain and because and, the brain is a very complex organ. And it's so for me, I had to learn a little bit of neuroscience, learn again, a little bit of terminology. And I'll be honest, I'm still learning about, you know, this terminology, understanding neuroscience. But one of the things that, you know, from this, ex, ex, uh, not only this experiment, but this uh, research was that I, some of the things that I found with case studies resonated with me and my experience as a survivor. And wow. a lot of that, yes, a lot of that talked about how our bodies are when we are in a fight or flight stance. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the famous um, experiment with uh, Pavlov's dogs. No. Okay, so basically Pavlov's dog, this is a, a study from like early 1900s and it was basically um, behavioral conditioning, condition, conditioning, sorry. And it used these dogs that he had to ring a bell. And these, and with the bell, he noticed that the dogs would come and associated the bell with getting fed. And so when the bell rung, the dogs would feed, you know, would come in ready to get fed. But then the dogs, when there wasn't a bell, they didn't come to get fed, they wouldn't eat. So basically conditioning the dog. And that is something I related that to also with domestic violence, because it is a grooming situation that's happening. You're being groomed. These abusers are, they're studying you. You may not realize it, but they're studying you. They're, they're preying on you. And, you know, and why are they all, Danielle, are they all narcissistic? This possibility, I wouldn't, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of different levels of it. I think, you know, but a narcissism, there's, you know, it could be a Machiavellianism, it could be of psychopathy. There's a lot of the dark triad. Yeah, I know like narcissism is a, a definitely a, a hot topic, but I think it it depends. But also, I, I think mental illnesses also plays a role. Yeah. You know, uh, substance abuse can also play a role, alcoholism. So it, I think it varies, you know, from person to person, you know, also, you know, genetics can play a role, the environment. It, it's a lot, um, I think, that not just from, one thing. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, you know, with this, this book, this is the outcome of the research, you know, neuroscience. You yes, neuroscience, the ecosystem of domestic violence, because I wanted people to relate in the sense of, okay, yes, this is a lot of it is, uh, you know, scientific terms, you know, like I, I do compare the ecosystem, you know, everybody knows about the atom. But in this case, I compare it to the brain and I talk about the anatomy of the brain and how different parts of the brain, especially in the, it's called the prefrontal cortex, that if this part of the brain is damaged, it has increased the ability of that person being volatile, you know? And so those are some of the things that, you know, we need to know, even if you don't understand the brain, there's some things like, hey, I may need to check it out. Uh, the ridges that are in that we see how the brain looks, it looks like little squiggly lines to call the gyrus. And with the with the gyrus, if there's there's something called uh, the gray matter and there's white matter, and if there's a reduction in the gray matter, you know that can lead to uh, a possibility of schizophrenia with mental illness. So these are just certain basic things, and it's research. I mean, it, it, I 
credit a lot of, there's a lot of people, a lot of amazing scientists who, who've done the studies and talked about this um, along with the brain chemicals and how it relates to domestic violence. And yet, you know, one thing I, I will say, it's not in the, I know for the United States or definitely New Jersey, it's not, these studies are not even talked about in the legal system. It, you know, and it's separated, unfortunately. And so that's that's the, the part of, because if, if this was, this case study was brought into the course, I feel like it could have done, it could be a, a massive amount of change because now we're, we're not sure what kind of person we're dealing with. Yeah. You know, are we dealing with someone who has mental illness? Are we dealing with someone that is, their brain is alcoholic damaged? Alcoholic. Like alcohol, right. And so I, I think it's just a lot of situations are simplified as we're just getting a restraining order. And a restraining order is not that it's not the smoking gun. It's not the end all be all. Because in real time, if someone comes to you and approaches you and that, you know, you have a restraining order against and you're saying, stop, I have a restraining order. Do you think they're going to stop if, no. if they want to? Exactly. If they want to stop, if they want to hurt you, they're going to hurt you. And, and no paper is going to stop that. And you call the police. It may take time for the police to get if you're allowed to have your phone, because yeah. if that abuser may have not taken the phone, may or may not have, take, have taken it. So I think that people have to see it from a different lens. And, and so with this book, like I said, I put it as different levels. So I talk about the brain, the emotions and the actions. I, I talk about the, I compare the cells to people. And where I, I talk about the victims and abusers, but I also introduce, you know, the victim defendants who aren't talked about and discussed, who are, you know, charged with crimes. However, they're trying to defend themselves and protect themselves, but the court doesn't recognize that. I also talk about the enablers, the family members and friends who support the actions of these abusers and also sometimes helps them in these yes. cases. You know, I, I bring into, you know, different um, how... Children are impacted, and you know, having an interview with children, talking about different um, entities like again DCPMP or the Child Protective Services, how they're impacted or how they impact others. You know, by you know, just a stroke of a pen, they can change your life. Uh, you know, even to to where the colleges, where they're supposed to be reporting incidents on the you know campus, and they may not, and you may not know if there are DV uh, statistics on that campus. So that's you, true. You know, it's, so you, it's like it's hidden or something. Right. They, you know, so it's almost like your reputation. You have your protecting reputation and not, okay, we can suppress this. So you don't know what's going on. And I know as far as the United States with the legal system, you know, that one, there's not a domestic violence charge. Like it's not a felony charge. The domestic violence is listed under the acts, whereas maybe a simple assault where it may be stalking harassment. So it's, so these individuals can go into jail for maybe a few days come right back out and then they're back on the street and then there's retaliation occurring, you know, all the way also, you know, I talked about the Congress and to where Congress is uh, making laws, creating laws to the entertainment, how entertainment shapes us as people and overview of society. So it goes all the way to society. And I use the American culture because again, I am I'm American, I'm African-American and I'm here and witnessing all of these things and I compare it also to like Darwinism, you know, survival of the fittest, because in the sense, even with entertainment, we this is the person you're supposed to be with. You're supposed to be with this guy who is the ultimate badass or the ultimate person that's just, you know, whomever. And we yeah. stay away from the weak ones. Well, in the same sense, you know, you're populating more, which could be a, a lot of narcissists. 
you know, yeah. because you're populating a lot of those through the genetics and, and whatnot. So I think a lot of that it, it stems from, you know, learned behavior stems from all these things, but it's not so simplified and, and people simplify it to, oh, it's just two people arguing, two people yeah. fighting. So I, I really try to make a dent into this to, to wake people up and say, look, it is so much deeper. One, respect the fact that, you know, victims and survivors are fighting a hard battle that we're not weak and that we are not, you know, we are very resilient and we're strong to have to have gone through this and that they deserve your respect and your compassion because yes. there's people in this and who work in these facilities and are desensitized and mistreat victims and, and treat us as if, you know, we're like, oh, how can you be so weak? And yet don't care about the fact of how hard we have to try to stay alive. Yeah. And or until unless it's too late, then you have, well, she was this kind of person or I wish I could have helped her. What about when she was alive? And so and, and I understand that there's, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, um, there's men abusers, there's men victims, women abusers, uh, women victims. And the thing is, I kept my research with women victims and men abusers because that is my story. And it's not right. to negate anybody's experience, but it's not my story. And I open to anybody, I'm, you know, welcome to anybody to tell your story whether it is a man or woman abuser, tell your story because and it doesn't really matter because it's going to be pretty much the same story. It doesn't matter if you're female or male. Right. But the thing I, is, is that the, the difference, there's different ways of male abusers. Um, I would say abuse versus women abusers. Men are right. more use more violence than women. do, And I'm not saying it's it definitely is an exception to the rule, but it's more, you know, it's more obvious with the men. I'll just say that that use violence as a tool. I, I also felt that there was a part of it that was bullying. Like there's a oh, bullying yeah. aspect of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's to exert power. That's exert control. They use, there's a lot of tactics, you know, that are, are being, it's because you're, you're trying, you're trying to dominate somebody. You're trying to control them and, and to how you want them to be. And bullying is, is definitely part of that, but also to it's it's a creating an imbalance in that person because it's almost like making them like a um, a robot. You have to act on this accord, and it is it, it is the most sickening thing that anybody can can think of. And so it's it's a lot deeper than just bullying. It is a, yeah. a realm of tactics. I'll have to have you come back because there's so much more to this story. <laughs> yes, I would love that. I honestly would love that. I just want, you know, your your listener and viewers to, you know, to understand that, you know, I may not be the person you know, but there may be someone in your neighborhood, someone that you cherish, you love, and that may have gone through this. And, you know, and I, I challenge you to listen and to actually help. hear what they have to say, right here and help, not just you know, oh, I, I'll just take you to the store and make sure really if you're going to be in that situation to, to be in a position to help help them because you may not know what they truly need. And it's not going to last just five minutes of your time. It, it really it takes a while for, for people to get back on their feet. It, take, it can take years. Yeah. Well, mentally and physically. Oh, gosh. Yes. Yes. Meant financially, spiritually. It, it, it Yes. The whole gamut. Yes. What kind of final message would you like to leave the listeners with? I just want to thank you for listening to my story. You know, you and I hope that 
my story and my book can help save a life or two. And, and I always say, and I hope people come away listening, understanding that there is a deeper situation here. And for the victims and survivors who are listening, I am here with you. I am fighting with you. I'm fighting for you. And I'm hoping to things can change for us because I've been there. I've gone through it. I'm still fighting. Even years after being out of it, it it's never ending. And, and just know that you are heard. And I hope that this book does you justice and help validate your struggle because I know it did for me. That's beautiful. Why Thank do you, you think it's never ending, Danielle? Because there's not a lot of things in place to end it. You have people who don't understand domestic violence and you can't change what you don't understand. It's going to take more uh, different combined or a combination of industries to come together. And in my opinion, I feel that the legal system needs the science uh, community, the mental health professionals. They need these people to help understand the, the mindset, the, the neuroscience. They need to understand the personalities because you have, you have humanistic behaviors in the courts and yet they don't even understand what's going on in these people's minds. And you cannot, you, you cannot give them a consequence or help them if, you're, if you don't understand. And you're leaving people to, through the cracks. They're slipping through the cracks. Yeah, so it's I, a lot of things like that. I guess also uh, on a note of that, I guess what's so difficult is lying beside someone you're married to and thinking, I really don't know this person. Yeah. I think that's the, the, the true, you know, like, why does it go up and down? Why is this nice and not nice? And why is there this constant change and walking on eggshells and you're lying beside someone. And for, for me, it was 30 years. Mm -hmm. So that's not light. That's not a light time. No. It's not. And you think, God, I really don't know this person. Right. And I think that's that's something to be said about, like, I really, like, how can someone think like that? Like, from the other side of it, you're like, I just don't get it. Like, I, how right. is their brain working like this? <laughs> I'm telling you, preaching to the choir. I, it, it's, I've spent many a day trying to figure that out. And just how can you be this cool? How can you be this evil, this wicked, I, I feel. And it is just did not know what he was capable of. And yeah. I and and then it was like, I don't think he would go this low. And then it would go, he would go further. And it was just like, oh my God. Like, and the surprise, like, like, how could you let your family be this? How can you, you know, it, it's just enable this and, and there's right. so many things. So many, so many. And and just just a lack of, of care. So I that's why I feel that with um, understanding the brain, understanding the, the chemicals or understanding, you know, some of these case studies, it will really help you understand like, okay, there's something, there's something beneath there because a normal person isn't going to act like this. Someone that's right. happy does not act like this. Right. You know, so there's something underlying there. And I think it's, it's deeper than just having um, a therapy session. Maybe some people may need medication. Maybe some people really do need their head examined. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, but I think there, there needs to be more in, in place. I, and, you know, for me personally, I just think that it's, you know, you need to have more of, of um, programs 
for this, I want to say centered for yeah. the abusers. And I, I don't think it's a position that the woman can be in and say, you know, dear, I really don't know what your brain is doing <laughs> and I right. want to have your brain examined. I don't really think that's going to be a good thing that's going to go over very well. Well, no, no, but I do think the courts and but, the, the science can. Yes, it, absolutely. Yeah, I just I, I wanted to say that many times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just it's very nerve wracking because you it's like trying to figure out like what is, is going on. It, it, it really keeps you in your head. But I, I will say like when I, I spoke with a batter's uh, intervention program coordinator named Leisha in this interview, and she explained that abusers start off as victims themselves who were abused themselves and they end up going a different path. But I, I think that, you know, it takes people in powerful positions to start understanding that and really um, dive in, you know, instead of, you know, just taking it as a domestic violence situation and just taking notes or whatever, investigate it as if this was a homicide case. Investigate it because you're wondering who's these people around, what happened at this time, what happens with these people who are involved, you know, start getting these enablers arrested because I, they're accessories. If there was a murder, you know, right. guess what? They would be considered an accessory. So what do you think is happening during the abuse? You but know, they don't, they just don't do that. They don't because they don't understand it. They wait till after like OJ Simpson when, when it's already over with. Right. Before their reaction. Exactly. And it's not a, we're not in a proactive type of society. It's more so of a reactionary. And, you know, although this is, you know, like I said, you have American, you know, this is the American, you know, nice version. But I feel like even with Canada, I'm, you know, I'm assuming that you guys definitely have your own, you know, yep. different laws that may not yep. be effective for you guys. That's absolutely. I'm sure every country does. Right. And I think it's just becoming a little bit more recognized, but I wouldn't right. say that it's easier. No, I've, I've noticed just with. There's more TV shows about it. There's there's more being put out there about it. But when you're in it, it's a different story. Yes. And it also, you know, a lot of things with, with I'll say with entertainment, you know, they have it to where they, they stereotype with the victim being meek and mild and they would never hurt a fly. And the thing is, is that there's a lot of, I, I say, I know I'm a fighter and I have my, you know, people who have been in these situations and they are fighting back. And the thing is, is that you're also dealt with, well, you don't look like a, um, a victim, you know, and, or, and he you know, doesn't like, either. Right. And that's the thing you're dealing with, with these stereotypes, you're dealing with people's opinions, you know, even when you, you know, like I was, judgments. Yes. Yes. And, and that's when people are, you know, different from different backgrounds, different professions, you know, like I, I was saying earlier today that you have people you're when you grow up, you're being told, you know, when you get sick, you go to the doctor. When you need help, you go to a police officer. And I'm for, hey, you know, I'll call the police and, and ask for help. But you don't know what type of police officer you're getting. You may get one who may be, you know, just as helpful as can be, and, and you'll never forget them. But you also may get someone that can be just as nasty and and is not empathetic and does not care, and you know, and could really, you know, ruin your chances of trying to escape. And so you're met with different people, and it's like, you know understanding the people behind the titles. And that's where I think also people have to understand is that it's the, you know, you we're all fixated on these titles 
that we're not looking at these people who are not equipped and may not be equipped to yeah. dealing with domestic violence and not being able to handle these circumstances or see which one is the victim, which one is the abuser. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Oh my goodness, I, I don't wanna go. How about you guys? <laughs> I, we're gonna have to have you come back on. Um, and um, even if we tell your story again and just talk more about what you've recovered, what you've covered out of all of this. Um, I think that's awesome. And are you doing any side coaching at all with women? Yeah, I would love to. Um, I have not done anything yet uh, as with that, but I am, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what the opportunities hold in the future. So I'm not going to cancel awesome. that out. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you can always reach out to Danielle um, and her link is down below. And we're going to add another link um, in the next few days because I'm going to get on her to put some more <laughs> contact information on there for you. Um, but thank you so much, Danielle. This was so informative. I hope that we can help just one person out there to recognize the signs, recognize that it's not you. I know I went through that, like, what's wrong with me? What am, what am I not doing or saying or feeling? Like, it, it's just crazy how it gets put onto you. And then you have less clarity of what's happening with them and why are they acting like this? And it's just, it's just a snowball effect of trauma, I guess. Right. And it, it's so unclear in so many ways of what to do and how to do it. I guess we've all watched that movie where you're like, just leave. Why is she not leaving? Right. We've all watched those shows and it's because when you're in it, it's hard to get out. It's like you go down this tunnel and you think you walk up two more ladder rungs and then you're like down three again. It's just, it's just keeps bringing you back down. I don't know how else to explain it. I try to visualize it in certain ways. <laughs> no, you're doing perfect. That's exactly right. Cause it's, it's your experience. Mm -hmm. Every experience, it may be under the same umbrella, but it's your experience. Yeah. Yeah, the darkness is just of what not to do, what how to do it, not to know what to do. There's so many things. And um, I think there's definitely something to be said about your book and about how informative, just having a little bit of more information at your fingertips to understand what that person is doing to you as well as what they are like. It's understanding the brain. Yes. Do you forgive him now or? <laughs> it's a, it is a, honestly, it's, it's peaks and valleys. It's days where I can, there's days where I can't, you know, it, it's, it's not an easy road. You know, I, for me, it's, uh, there's some things I may never be able to get over because of how um, hard it was. Yeah, But I think for me, it's not about the forgiveness. It's about achieving peace. It's about being able to lift my head, my head high and say, you know what? I went through this. I survived this. And now I can focus on creating a better generation, a next generation with my sons. 
Yeah. So it's so it's having to take him out of the equation and and doing something more purposeful than focusing on forgiving. Right. Well, and you forgive yourself. I mean, we have to forgive ourselves. For you know, it's funny. I I've heard that, but honestly, I I I want to. I don't. I I don't use the forgiveness. It's more so just being there for myself, loving myself, and getting re um, reintroducing myself to myself. Knowing, yeah. you know, and and saying, you know, I'm here for you. I'm here for myself, and that knowing that I'm loved, I love myself. If, if if nobody else, I love myself. Right. And that it's okay. You know, did did I expect to go through this? No, but I'm here for myself, and I think that's most important. Yeah, and I guess what I mean is, what I had to do was love yourself, but also recognize that you forgive yourself for not noticing lots of the different things that you mm -hmm. should have noticed but should have could have would have right <laughs> so that's where i i forgive myself and mm -hmm. take it as as a lesson i guess to being better and knowing i've gone through that and i can love myself even more because now i recognize the signs now i can recognize that that's unacceptable behavior Right. Or, or a comment is unacceptable because you now love yourself. Right. But you also have to be gentle with yourself because yeah. you, you don't know what you don't know That's until right. you're in it. That's so, right. you know, it's just being gentle, you know, in that type of situation where you're dealing with a lot of cruelty, you know, be, it, it's, you don't want to be too hard on yourself. Yeah. So yeah, I, I try to stay gentle. I, I try to be gentle with myself and, and just, it, you know, just know that I'm, you know, I had to make the decisions for what it is at that time. Yes. And, that it, and it's okay. It may That's not turn right. out the way I wanted it, but it, it's okay. And that we can move forward and, and try to, to live my best years, you know, after that. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's perfect. Well, you know, everybody, it's that time and we'll definitely have Danielle come back. Um, we are not Superman, even though we think and we act like we are. Because, you know, sometimes we just think it's going to be the white picket fence and the beautiful house on the hill and all of that. And sometimes it's not. Um, and we have to realize that we do have to be prepared um, in some shape or form. And it's good to know your documentation. It's good to know your finances. It's good to know even if you have to sneak and try and hide and find documentation that's around the house um, because he's not going to tell you. No. I hate to tell you that, but they're not going to tell you. Um, so, and don't just jump at, I, I guess what I want to say is, yes, you want to call the police when the police say, well, why didn't you call the police? Well, because you don't want to jump at something. You don't want to react to something. You want to put your eggs in a basket, I guess, so to speak. Absolutely. And by getting the information that you might need ahead of time, because boy, oh boy, is it hard to get after. So you got to do your homework beforehand and sneak and do whatever you, you need to do to get prepared, unfortunately. Yes. Um, as, as hard as that is. But, you know... Um, with your backup plan that does help you get that prepared and it will 
get you to find those documents, know what documents to find, and you can put it all into this app and it makes it all easy then. You can take photos of it with your phone so that you don't even have to walk away from the house taking the document. You can just take a photo of it. Um, so all of that being said, I'm so happy to have had Danielle on our show. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our show. We'd love to have you come back. We'd love to have you uh, watch more of our shows. And it will be on a podcast next month. Um, and that being said, I always end our show with Carol Burnett. And I know you know who, Danielle, who Carol Burnett is. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started. And before you know it, comes a time we have to say so long. So long, everybody. I hope that we have helped someone out there to reach out find some more information, look at your own situation, help somebody by sharing this video. If you know somebody, but you don't quite know what to say or do for them, share this video with them and it will guide them in the right places. Maybe contacting Danielle, maybe reaching out to me. We can help you out in all sorts of, give you options, talk about it with somebody that that has been through it. So thank you, Danielle, for coming out. And thank you, everybody. It was a pleasure to have you, Danielle. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so You're much. Welcome. And we'll have Danielle come back and talk about things that we can do to prepare, perhaps, and things that we didn't look at and things that we should look at. That would be awesome, too. So stay tuned for uh, like, share, and subscribe to our show. If you subscribe, you'll get notified. And we'd love to have you come back. Until next time, stay safe and be kind, everybody. Love you.